Hello, welcome to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You're listening to a podcast all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Meg, your host, and I'm a national staff writer at The Athletic, covering the NWSL and the U.S. women's national team. Things simply do not stop happening in the sport, and so to help me make sense of a week when things refuse to stop happening, Jeff Kasuf of Equalizer Soccer is here with me this week. Unfortunately, we must also talk about math during this show, but I promise it is to help you understand the NWSL a bit better. And as a special bonus and to celebrate the fact that I got to Moonlight last weekend as a women's hockey writer once again, we will also have a very special bonus episode this week. The best news of all is that Megan Duggan, former Captain America for USA Hockey, will be joining the podcast to help me convert some of you into hockey people and to prepare you to watch another televised PWHPA game this weekend. So please prepare yourselves and keep an eye out for the bonus pod tomorrow. Before we get to the news recap, a quick reminder, as always, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month and also show your support for the coverage of women's soccer and women's sports by visiting theathletic.com slash full time. Okay, let's get to all of the news, which as always, and as I said earlier, there's just always news. Um, The latest round of COVID-19 testing was announced on February 27th for the NWSL and in the week from February 20th. To the 27th, 840 tests were performed for people associated with the teams, and zero individuals received a confirmed positive test. So some good news there, obviously. On Friday, we did get some new details about the year ahead for the U.S. Women's National Team, courtesy of Kate Markgraf, plus some other big updates from across U.S. soccer during the Board of Directors meeting. But two big things for listeners of the show To know, Lisa Baird is now sitting on the board of U.S. Soccer, replacing North Carolina Courage owner Steve Malik. And we also have set dates now for all of the remaining U.S. Women's National Team games for 2021, save a pair of friendlies that are just tabbed for late June, early July. Oh, and we also know now that the official FIFA deadline for the final Olympic roster is June 30th, according to a U.S. Soccer spokesperson. I have that in a story, uh, which also includes plenty more from the board of directors meeting. Paul Tenorio and I broke down all of the major updates from that on The Athletic. Now, on Saturday, we had the annual general meeting, which took place. And by now, I am sure most of you have seen exactly what went down. But the short version of this is that one member of the athlete council took the microphone to express his opposition to the fact that the board of directors had made the decision last summer to stop making athletes stand for the national anthem and in the middle of this seven minute rant detoured into racist rhetoric along the way by sunday night the athlete council had voted to remove him and to condemn his remarks paul tenorio also have a story up on that about saturday last friday MLS also announced that Ron Burkle will not move forward with an expansion team in Sacramento, basically bringing those expansion efforts on the men's side of the game to a strange halt for the moment. Now, as of right now, all of those conversations uh, I have had have indicated that that this might not affect the NWSL. After all, they, they do have a signed agreement in place and payments have been made. It is still early, though. Now, Jeff and I will discuss this plenty more in the show, but again, if you would like the full context of what's happening on the MLS side to understand this a bit more, there is also an athletic story for that as well. 
Finally, one more thing. A bunch of new owners for the Chicago Red Stars announced this week with 14 people added to that ownership group, including ESPN's Sarah Spain and USA hockey player Kendall Coyne-Sofeld. All right. So let's bring in Jeff Kasuf of Equalizer Soccer. He founded that site in 2009. He's obviously been doing this for quite some time. He was also the first person I ever wrote for when it, when it came to my own women's soccer coverage. In addition to his own writing and running the site, he also hops on the Equalizer podcast, plus hosts Kicking Back with Jeff Kasuf, a show that he had already invited me on. So now I finally get to pay back the favor by bringing him on as a guest for full time. With that intro done, as promised, it is time for some math. All right, so I want to start this conversation with two of our favorite things, which are NWSL contracts and math, just two great tastes that go together. Um, You have an article that you published on Wednesday trying to once again explain how contracts work in the NWL when it comes to both allocation status and allocation money again one of the best most confusing things about the NWSL so if you could I, there was someone on Twitter when I when I said okay Jeff is going to be on the show and we're going to talk about this and the response was can you explain it like I'm four like I'm five like I'm three maybe like is there an elevator pitch of what people should be taking away from this new system of contracts in the NWSL. Let's start there. Um, There's no way that a five-year-old would ever understand this because I don't think the 35 and 45 and (laughs) 55-year-olds understand it. But um, I would say the high-level takeaway, which you and I have both written about this year, is that you can now make equal money in different ways um, by being paid through the league and through the team. So it's really through the league, you know, similar money as you could have previously where maybe, you know, U S soccer federation status was the only way to make that quote unquote, bigger money that you can do that now through. I I think that's the big thing that it's, it's different ways of getting to almost the same point. Right. And so, I mean, one of, I think the big things that I wrote about was the fact that there is kind of this hope from NWSL teams that if they pay players directly, right, they show this financial commitment that they're going to get this commitment in return back from the players, that they're going to be a little more present in the markets and also that they're going to have a little more access to players just in terms of I think marketing and community efforts and all that kind of stuff. Right. Because players historically have been kind of dragged between U S national team obligations and then NWSL obligations. But then there's also kind of, there we've been we've been around this league since day one right there has always been this fundamental tension between u.s women's national team scheduling and nwsl scheduling and that's not going away though even with the new contract structure right and i think it really varies as i'm sure you've had these conversations by team of how they think these changes will affect the league affect them you know i think there are teams that are optimistic there are teams that think groups maybe that think, you know, we'll have a complete overall of the system in a year's time. Some people think it'll be years before, you know, that's the case. And to your point, even if that is the case, you know, is U.S. soccer still some sort of overlord? I think at the very least, it is always going to be. I don't think this is as bad of a thing as it's typically made out to be. But like, you know, the the idea that winning a World Cup or maybe an Olympic gold medal 
will always be a priority for most of these players in that position over um, at least, you know, a regular season game in May, that's always going to be the case. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it'll vary by player. And you've seen, you can see kind of the players who, you know, are keen to get right back to market after a tournament or something. But, you know, I think that tension is always going to be there. And, and that, frankly, that priority system is always going to be there. And I can't fault somebody for that being the order of priorities. I think it's how you go about that. That becomes the question. Right. And I think that's, you know, we're going to talk about potentially some of, we've got a big CBA negotiation coming up this year. And I want to talk to you about that in a second, but first I want to talk about some of these specific numbers because fortunately your report today, and this was the math part, right? Where, I mean, I was reading this and going, man, thank God Jeff wrote this because if I tried to write this right now, like my brain would just be on the floor somewhere trying to make sense of these numbers because part of this too is it's really hard to, I think, wrap your head around some of how this works because we don't always have 100% transparency, right? When it comes to allocation money and when it comes to cap space, we don't have a sense. We're, We're not getting this rundown of final contract numbers four players at the end of every year, right? Like there's no way for us to look at a a potential signing for a team and saying, oh, they can fit in that cap space. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, you've got some specifics here in terms of, you know, how the, the deals for Lindsay Horan and Crystal Dunn are working because they now count against the cap for 2021 at the league max, which is 52,500, right? But had they been on allocation status from the Federation, it would have been a $33,000 cap hit. Mm -hmm. So this is also just showing that the Thorns actually value that difference. Yeah. And look, I think the Thorns are are obviously a team um, by way even of, I don't think I'm breaking any news because they're the team that's done this with the two players that, that see that future maybe coming sooner even. Um, but you know, the flip side too, I mean, the, the Lynn Williams part of it, um, which, you know, I guess I've talked about or written about a lot, but it just happens to be that she is in that position of, um, sort of the case study of sorts of, <laughs> yeah. of the opposite that, you know, she had a, a bigger deal in place that essentially paid her, I guess you could say as well as anybody in, in some regards in the league, but then got offered federation status because she's now a bigger part of the U S plans and, Um, so by her taking it for 2021, you know, that also she would have under her old terms and those, I think 22, 23 there, everybody's planning for that to return anyway, but for 21, at least her taking the Federation money frees up cap space and actual cash for Mm -hmm. North Carolina, at least for the year. Right. And we've already, I think, seen at least one signing potentially come out of that. Like they're signing of, of Redding's has James, right? Like that, like you can see, okay, they get a little more money freed up all of a sudden, and then they've got a signing and you can kind of see the pieces start to fall into place, even though, you know, probably no one from North Carolina is going to be out here saying like, ah, yes, we got all this cash, (laughs) cash money back. And then we immediately got to throw it at a new player, but you can kind of see the sequence of events and go, oh, okay. That's probably how it's working. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, I think we're, you know, I try to, to say these things knowing, you know, it's only nine years in here, so I don't necessarily expect it, but we don't know what 
salaries are. And um, I think there's a whole sort of ethical debate you could get into. I know fans want to see them and whatever, but, but beyond like just knowing what player X is making it to your point, it's tough to know, well, are the courage or whatever team, are they out of cap space? Are they, have they overshot? Like you see this in the NFL and the NBA all the time. Mm -hmm. These numbers are there. So like a reporter could look at an NFL salary cap of a team and say, well, based on their current roster, they're actually going to be over the projected cap next year. So somebody's got to go or get renegotiated. And I think that's just a different layer, a new layer of kind of the reporting and discussion side that we're, we're not at yet. I know some uh, people around the league, teams, owners, et cetera, are probably listening to this saying, you're never going to get there. <laughs> um, but I will continue. I'm sure you will too, to continue to push against that because it's good. It's yeah. good for everybody. I mean, I think it's just also the sign of like a more mature league, right? And and I think historically the reluctance to get into that is because, I mean, when this league started, the minimum salary was so low that they right. did not necessarily want to publicize like, oh, players are making, you know, $10,000 a year maybe. And that's a good number for some of them, right? So I think as as the minimum rises a bit and hopefully gets into a, a much more sustainable place, then the transparency comes alongside of that but again i think that also comes with pressure both from media and fans as you say so we'll see (laughs) (laughs) to say the least um i do want to get into the to the potential impact of the collective bargaining agreement for the u.s women's national team i think there's also kind of the concept of a cba for nwsl players kind of still hanging out in this ether over us of there's at least like preliminary discussions happening, I think on this front. Um, But, you know, we do have kind of this firm deadline of knowing that the collective bargaining agreement for the U S women's national team ends at the end of this year and could have obviously major impacts for 2022. We don't really have any sense yet of how conversations are going to go. Obviously we're about to hit the two year anniversary of the lawsuit (laughs) between the players and the Federation. Right. So there still is, obviously a lot kind of hanging out um, in terms of the two sides being not necessarily close on a number of things, um, an appeal in the works, but is it too early to have a sense of, you know, maybe even just thinking about like what discussions are going to be like every team that I've talked to is operating under the assumption that allocation status is going to go away by 2022. And maybe that's just a safe way to plan, but you know, do we, do we have any sense yet of, this is what we might be looking at for 2022 with, with fallout for the end of I don't think so from the sense that the, the CBA is obviously, you know, complicated enough. And, and I think um, maybe back to the other point, like where NWSL falls in that priority list of, you know, within that structure and within, you know, the entire battle that, that surrounds it legally and otherwise, um, you know, I think, I think it's going to be tough for teams to plan. You're right. It seems like a lot of people are, are planning in such a way that they're ready for that come next year. But I think the tough part, if you're an NWSL team right now is, uh, and, and really the league probably to some degree is you don't know what you're planning for per se. You're assuming things. I think that's a problem the league has, you know, beyond even this specific topic is you're kind of assuming some things. Um, you know, there are teams making moves right now. <laughs> assuming that they know what the expansion draft is going to look like or be. And, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. So um, 
I don't know. I think it's too early from an NWSL perspective to say anything firm because there's so much, you know, the, the layers of what's going to happen with appeal, you know, the, the entire sort of lawsuit and battle to begin with, and how does that impact the CBA with the Federation and where does NWSL fit into that? I think, you know, you and I have both sort of said that it, it's felt like if you'd rewind maybe five, six years that we were on a path toward setting up a future where those are separate entities, but there was always the question of, is that going to happen at the end of this CBA? And I think there's more optimism or, or maybe just more thinking. I don't know if it's optimism that that'll be the case, but I don't know that we could say that for sure at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about expansion draft and my answer consistently is just like, we have no idea what it's going to look like yet. And thus I think everybody should maybe just like hang out and wait. Like that's not, our natural instinct is to just kind of like wait to see what information that we're going to get <laughs> in the future. But it's so hard to anticipate, like, let's, I want to put a pin in this because we're going to talk about expansion in general next, but rules change in the NWSL on a very frequent basis. <laughs> so to try to anticipate what an expansion draft for two teams, question mark, might look like, feels just kind of like a fool's errand. Like we can think about how it would look logically, but that does not mean that we are guaranteed to hit anywhere near the mark of what it'll actually look like by the time December rolls around. Yeah. And we haven't had to, again, we'll, we'll <laughs> see, I guess, but we haven't had to see it in action with two teams at once. So um, I think that adds a different wrinkle. I actually thought the, I thought the last expansion draft was just lame. I mean, the, you know, at least in the past, there was like, like it was, it was made for TV. They picked, they made their picks. It did. Yeah. I think that it was marketed in some way as like their first pick in the expansion draft. Like, no, <laughs> you just, you put them in order, but there was no, like previously teams could pull teams, could pull yeah. a player back. Right. Yep. That added some intrigue. Right. But the fact that that didn't exist this time just made it like, okay. Here's you, a list of, you yeah. could have just given us a list. You picked a list, you saved the most uh, headliner, the two headliners for the end for dramatic effect, but yep. you know, they were really probably one and two on your list in some regards. So, um, yeah. I don't know. We'll see what quote unquote two team expansion draft yeah. looks like. All right. Let's get into that because obviously, I mean, this is a very news heavy interview for the two of us, just because a things keep happening and a lot of them are affecting what we cover Sacramento in particular the news that actually hit was technically on the MLS side with Sacramento's bid for MLS essentially falling apart to some extent. Right. And the immediate reaction from NWSL side, just based on conversations I had was like, we don't think this affects us as of right now. Right. But even before we get to an actual discussion of if it affects the NWSL, because it feels very strange to me to think that it won't, I want to rewind to you had the first report about Sacramento being a potential expansion team. And from the beginning, the vibe has been weird, right? Yeah. I mean, weird, <laughs> weird is an understatement. I, I, it's, it's curious. It's, I mean, I find it concerning and, and the thing about it too is I think that's been voiced publicly and, and behind the scenes and, you know, it should be something very easy to change that kind of a, a narrative. I mean, 
it's a good thing, right? I mean, you, I, it's good for the league. It's good for the city in theory, all of these things. And it's something at the very least you want to play up. And I think you could look at, if you want a barometer, look at the announcement for MLS Sacramento it was pre COVID. Yes, but it was a celebrity party, which is how these things usually go. Maybe right. not so much on the NWSL side, but um, it's a big deal. And yeah, you get to stand up on the stage with Don Garber and <laughs> your scarf and right. like, and, feel you know, like an important person. Right. And pick your, you know, MC of local fame <laughs> and, and all of these things. But, yeah. um, you know, th- it just, it never panned out in, in the sense of a confirmation. Um, you know, it took a year and then, and then even this past summer, um, when I think you and the athletic reported that it was done or yeah like the paperwork was done payment Um, the first payment was in yep and and you know from there at one point i was hearing well maybe it'll get announced um on a broadcast you know or or, you know it's coming it's coming soon this was august september maybe yep and it just weeks turned into months and you you know you talk to somebody it's like no i mean it's done and it's happening but you know i don't know it's like what I just, it's, it's really difficult to, to classify. And it's a topic as, as I've been writing, like it's a silly topic to begin with, because it's usually a thing where you've got a hundred sort of possibilities and maybe none of them pan out. So then you get one that's actually happening and the entity for one reason or another is not actually announcing it or seemingly publicly committing to it. It's really curious. And I mean, I find it concerning and, for a while I had people saying, well, you know, you know, talking down the concern, right. But now we have a real tangible reason to wonder why has this not been confirmed and what is actually happening? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just looking at this entire journey, right. Like you report it. And then, I mean, I remember being at the 2019 championship, right. And everyone's trying to like kind of prod Amanda Duffy being like, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? Because, when you first report it, it's like, this is for 2020, right? And then it slides and slides. And then I report it and all of the initial people are going, oh, they're going to be fine for 2021. And then there's kind of like this immediate discussion after that. And everyone's like, well, like, let's back off on this because we don't, we don't really know. <laughs> we don't know. And there are some voices of reason going, well, why, why are we rushing things? Like, first of all, you have Angel City coming in in 22, but at the stadium for the MLS team is now pushed back to 23 because of the pandemic. Right. So do we really need to rush this team coming into the league? Like we have now finally gotten away from this kind of smash and grab (laughs) attempt at launching NWSL expansion teams where you have Louisville coming in ahead and having time for a runway. You have angel city announcing in July and not starting play until 2022. Like, this is how it should work where you actually have time to build a team instead of like announcing in December and then starting play in April. But it's just, yeah, it's just such a strange vibe. And now I think the, the big question becomes right is the bid for Sacramento was obviously built around what they had in place as part of the MLS team especially facilities wise. So if your NWSL bid now no longer includes those facilities, that's not what was approved for expansion. 
So does it change things for the NWCL, especially when it comes to how important facilities have been, at least in terms of what we've seen from, you know, I think they were super important for Louisville in terms of both training and the stadium, right? I think they were extremely important for Angel City that they had to find that stadium home for the team, right? And I think they found the right one, but now Sacramento is just kind of this giant question mark and there's just silence. <laughs> yeah, silence is, is not a good thing. I, to answer your question directly, it absolutely changes things. The, the question of how and how much maybe I think is the big thing because the facility is different Certainly, I would say inferior, right? I, it can still be a good one, but it's not what was promised. The reality is not what was bid on. And then even the, the capital, I mean, we haven't really heard, you know, there's been the announcement that Ron Burkles is not committed to the MLS side, which is, you know, if you add in the stadium is more than 100x really what you're talking about on the NWSL side. But um is still, you know, it, it does that mean he's not committed to the NWSL money as well? And they need a majority owner now. I mean, same as you, I, I've gotten sort of a, we don't think this changes anything. I mean, that's not the most confident thing to begin with, but <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think there is an interesting, I have not, I, I've not seen a contract or anything, so I can't speak to exact legalities of, you know, what is maybe a violation of, of an agreement, but you know, there is money paid on the NWSL side, as you just said, where I, I sounds like there is not at least to the same degree, certainly on the MLS side. So, you know, there's a commitment level there that I think, I don't know, it, it seems to me that we still need to know more, but also that we could be in a scenario where legally, if Sacramento wants to move forward and meets sort of minimum standards and checks those kind of boxes that they almost have to, if they want to, Yeah. but obviously that would put the NWSL in a place where, you know, with respect to Sacramento, there are a lot of large markets that this league is not in, in a way that MLS maybe is. Um, so, you know, maybe that Sacramento bid is super appealing because of what it was supposed to be. And then if it's not what it was supposed to be, and it's maybe some sort of shell of that, you know, now you start looking and saying, okay, well, you know, the market itself, it's still a very big and important market, but, you know, maybe there are other more appealing markets are equally important, equally large that have, are now offering us better mm -hmm. facilities, better infrastructure, frankly, I, I mean, maybe better ownership the way this is playing out. So I think if you're the NWSL, you're asking a lot of those questions, but the question that I think we need to see play out is like, are you already committed? And yeah. Then, yeah. You know. how, how does that commitment work from both sides? Like so, how deep in is Sacramento? Because we do like, we do know, I don't know. They have, they have signed paperwork. They have paid money. Right. Like, so now the question becomes, I mean, I think there is certainly the possibility that the expansion bid, like the expansion rights itself could get sold to another group. Like essentially how, the NWSL was able to buy back the rights to Utah Royals from Dola Hansen in order to then sell new expansion rights to the Kansas city ownership group. Like, I feel like there's always kind of that level of solution that you can rely on, but I think it is really interesting. And I think it is also going to be something that a lot of us are watching for in terms of when people start talking, what those conversations are, because I also think that there are going to be ownership groups looking at the Sacramento situation right now and 
ready to go and make their case to the NWSL of why aren't you going to pick us instead? And, and chief among them is that group that I had reported like out in um, Palo Alto that has a whole bunch of former U S women's national team players that Mm -hmm. are going to look at that and say, Hey, we've, we've potentially got a better facility. That's an MLS facility that we can partner with. Right. Um, And we know what we're doing (laughs) and you know, like, we've got kind of that angel city model happening right at the moment where we've got kind of this, this bigger investment group ready to go and maybe you should be talking to us instead. So. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's basically down the road. So that's, you know, a big question for the league too. I mean, I think maybe about the same as MLS. Um, I, I think maybe a little bit less egg on the face to a degree because Maybe because, ironically, they have lacked the pomp and circumstance of the <laughs> yeah. announcements that, you know. Just just Lisa Baird on our conference uh-huh. call being like, yeah. Sacramento is a go. And me being like, we're saying that now? Right. And I think that was, I really think that was a bit of a, a push maybe to get them in gear. Um, I don't know if strong arm is the word, but like, I think the league's been ready to go with this and obviously wants to play it up. And what whatever the problem is or holdup is, um, I think that might have been sort of a a targeted approach from a a league front. But I do think, you know, to make it really relatable, I don't know, you're right. We could see a change in some way that's a creative solution that gets everybody out of a situation that maybe wasn't what they thought it was. It feels like, you know, um, you know, maybe it's like a couple that signed a lease together and figured out a little bit along, you know, a couple, (laughs) couple months in that, wasn't quite right. Work. And now you right. know, what happens to that lease and what happens to the contract for, you know, Sacramento and, and the NWSL. I, look, maybe this all plays out fine, but it's tough to see that from where we're sitting now. Right. Right. And to be fair, like we are, I think we're just looking at it from the perspective of like, we've both lived through expansion. We've both lived through teams kind of, you know, going away and then finding life in new spaces. But it it is a, I have, I feel like I've never really quite experienced anything quite like the journey Sacramento has been on from just a sheer, what are your plans? <laughs> oh, it's usually the opposite, right? It's usually yeah. like somebody comes out and hypes themselves up and they're like, look what we're going to do. And like, then you're like, well, actually you don't have any money <laughs> and you don't know where you're going to play. Yeah. <laughs> your name is the Atlanta vibe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> But but yeah, this, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's stay on this topic of some ownership stuff because before we get to Chicago's entire deal, first I want to talk about some angel city stuff because at least for one team in California, right at the moment, like things seem to be progressing on the path that you would want them to be, but a couple of big sponsors coming in, um, I figured this would be a fun topic for us, but obviously DoorDash and Birdies both having a tie to the actual jerseys, right? That the team is going to wear. They like, they still, as part of the DoorDash announcement, they're like, we'll have jerseys and everything next year, right? Like this, like later this year, they finally gave themselves kind of a timeline on that. But I thought your, I hadn't actually read the Birdies thing. And then I saw your tweet where it's like, oh, special edition jerseys. And you already have a suggestion for them, right? You have your your throwback idea. I love the 2010 LA Soul Puma kit that never was, which got, were you at that? 
I don't know. Was that pre? That was that was in my dark age of women's <laughs> soccer. <laughs> yeah. So that was um, that was got the you know the big rollout treatment, and then uh, oh man, that that party could be its own podcast. <laughs> I've got they they rented out the old real world Philadelphia house, and these are things where you're like, oh yeah, you guys spent too much money in that league folded. <laughs> it was like <laughs> yeah. yes, uh, but this thing it was a catwalk, and this jersey was spectacular and i i'm fortunate enough to own one um i think by way of ebay one day yeah yeah um but i loved this jersey and you know i don't know who has the rights to it it was a puma jersey but that was and it never got worn i mean i don't even know how many are made right yeah that's a good that's a good point i mean i think that that's really interesting just because you know, I, I've had this discussion with a lot of people, like we don't always recognize the history in women's soccer because it doesn't, first of all, feel like there's really a lot of it, but also because there are gaps historically in between leagues, right? Like we finally started to see a little bit of maybe a nod to some of that history with the North Carolina courage, right? When they released that hat, that was kind of a nod to the original team in Carolina from WSA, but generally like, NWSL has wanted to exist as its own thing, which I, I get, but there is some history here. Right. And like, it should be that you can Chicago red stars. I now think have probably the best claim to having some of that history. So I I do think it's really interesting to, to start thinking about like, Oh, okay. Could we get special edition jerseys that point to a previous team in the same market that was not yours? Like, could potentially Kansas City NWSL at some point think about some sort of special edition that is a nod to FC Kansas City? I had that question on Twitter and I don't know, you know, the legalities of it, again, I think are probably more complicated than, than maybe for this pod, but the NWSL is a single entity. So like the Breakers, for example, which I did a lot of reporting on, like that brand is digitally sitting in Chicago slash Delaware with the NWSL. It did not go anywhere with those former breakers owners. So in theory, I would think the league could, in the case of FC Kansas city, kind of relicense that, but I'm sure there's some kind of ridiculous, very (laughs) NWSL thing because the way things ended there that they can't really, because then they open themselves up to some sort of, legality against you know that that they can't without the permission of the former owners but i think you could get creative and and kind of do a nod to yeah some of these perfect example being that la thing you know that's a puma team it's not you from 10 years 12 years ago but you know you could do a split jersey of sorts that makes it look like that right yeah you can take some design inspiration without probably really opening the door up too much i mean what's funny is like i like how we're having this conversation and then i think about the angst that nhl fans have about relocated teams wearing you know like hartford whalers like the angst that happens when it's carolina right that took over the hartford and just how that kind of sits with NHL fans. And they're like, "Mm, I don't know how I feel about that, but here we are like embrace your history. (laughs) Well, I think it it is though, you know, even if it's, I'd like to see some retro stuff, embrace the history, especially for teams that have won titles and gone away, like in an FC Kansas city case, but, um, or, or maybe, I don't know if you want to, what you could do with the flash there, but I think bigger picture would just be, um, 
the planning stuff, which a couple of us talked about on, on the equalizer pod the other month at this point of just like, you know, planning for Lisa Baird has said year 10, I want it big. There's deadlines. You got to get your logos, colors, everything in, you know, okay. And I hope that means that we're going to see something special on a gear, a branding front. And that, you know, whether it's a third kit, whether it's just well-designed something that's not a white t-shirt. Yeah. I mean, MLS is having this problem every year. You know, I'd like to see some better sort of branding uh, on many fronts. Right. I also would be very willing to throw a lot of money if some brand like a new era or someone like that decided to like do a WSA retro run. Like if you wanted to suddenly bring back like Bay area cyber rays for a shirt, like you have my money. You also probably have Marcus Thompson at the athletics money, like instantly, right? Like there are people who I think would actually would buy that. So maybe someone will actually realize that there's probably some money in some retro apparel for women's soccer and we can all hope. All right. Chicago red stars. We, we both survived a very long zoom for their new ownership group. Um, in terms of NWSL teams that are benefiting from infusion of new money, I think Chicago red stars was at the top of my list for needing an infusion of new money. Um, what were your takeaways from that press conference from, from the rollout, just in terms of, you know, I think Arnhem Whistler, the, the founding owner of the Red Stars who has been around across multiple leagues, right. Um, was pretty open about in terms of like what that meant for the team financially, but what, what is your read of the Chicago Red Stars heading into 2021 now? Yeah, I think the team at the top of the list, like you said, that that needed that. Um, I think that's something that's been a topic for a while because we've been in this sort of evolving landscape and, you know, Chicago being one of the quote unquote independents. And, and this is something that Arnhem Whistler addressed a little bit in tongue in cheek on that, that call of still being small, independent Chicago, but just bigger now, I think was how he said it. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously... The big questions, I think there's a few big questions that surround Chicago in in a similar way as they do, you know, the news out of Washington with the spirit. I think you could ask this of Angel City as well. And it's not meant to be inherently negative, but there is a question of when you have 14 owners, 30 owners, 60 owners of what's everybody doing maybe the best way to put it, what's everybody bringing to the table? And and there's a financial component to that, yes, but also, you know, what does that look like? And I think, you know, I've heard some, some of the more pessimistic takes of this being, you know, in some cases, maybe more, um, and I'm speaking more generally here, not just Chicago is what we started with, but is this more about the publicity side of it? Um, I don't think that's, the case certainly in, in general over overarching but um you know i think you have to answer those questions and, and chicago seems committed to answering that to the degree that um you know i think at least what we've been told is that there's sort of a lot of commitment there at a at a change level and a boardroom level and i think that'll be interesting to see you know how does this play out because those three teams we mentioned north carolina obviously with the naomi osaka news you know, these are things where 
you can look and say, yes, I really see that value in a non-monetary way, even though there has to be, you would think what we know, some money involved. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, how does that develop? Because, you know, if Osaka were to put in not a ton of money in the capital sense, but bring this brand to new heights in other ways, which I think she's already sort of. Yeah. I mean, the fact that she debuted their new kits at the Australian open, like that's already a value that North Carolina (laughs) courage. We're not about to get otherwise. So. Right. So what kind of value do you see out of that? And then how do you take advantage of it? I think that'll be something that, you know, will take a little while to answer. Yeah. And I think that's a really, you know, I don't think that the, the structure is inherently negative, right? I think that it has pros and cons because as you said, like larger ownership groups also open you up to questions about, you know, I think we've seen this with LAFC, right? Like if you have one owner suddenly go in this strange direction and do something bad, then it like you all of a sudden have a lot more people to corral, I'll put it that way, right? And to keep track of and monitor. But at the same time, you know, I think it, it has been really interesting in a couple conversations I've had, um, have, have kind of been like the NWSL has almost kind of figured out this way to have people pay for the honor of being an NWSL influencer, right? Like that is kind of, if you boil it down, because I think some of these people are not paying a huge amount of money, right? Which is fine. But as you say, there is a value both financial and then in terms of a platform, maybe that's going to get used or expertise that's going to be used. So it is really interesting to think about, okay, like if you have some of these lower level minority owners around who want to help, but they're paying for the honor to help the team, which I find fascinating. So it is, it is a very interesting thing, but I think it also, you know, we have watched it kind of spread right in the NWSL, but I think it has also benefited a team like Chicago who has needed financial investment for a while already. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, I don't think that I've said before all this, this sort of boom of, um, and maybe this isn't the direction that I necessarily was alluding to, but I don't think we're done with ownership changes, right? I mean, MLS is, you know, three decades in and, and you've got everything from maybe a sale to fiascos, like we're talking about with Sacramento, the Austin Columbus situation, Utah, Utah, so, you know, nobody, nobody, even in NFL, there's nobody immune to a problem. Um, but I think that we're, we're going to see more changes. I think this is a positive version of that. Um, my head a year ago in saying that was more at the place of, are people going to need to be replaced? And I think we found maybe that there's, there's a creative solution, a door open to, you know, even as these standards rise and maybe financially or otherwise some teams or owners can't meet them or need to adjust to them that they find a way to stay involved, but, you know, still find that solution. Yeah, that's even what, I mean, that's what's happening in Washington state, Tacoma, Seattle. Mm-hmm. That, that's why that was the reason for that sale, right? It was, you know, the Predmores looked and said, we know this needs to go and is going in a place that um, while we're still going to be involved and can do it, we are not the billionaire type owner. Right, right. And, you know, we're going to need somebody else here. And they did it in a way that kept the team in the market because that's the looming threat. And that the one that they spoke about openly was like, 
it almost or could have been a, a sale to somewhere else. And then you deal with relocation and sort of the unpacking of right. what that means for fans. So I think it's a net positive, but obviously, you know, have to see, have to see um, where it goes and the, the complications maybe that come with it. Right. All right. Last one. Uh, it wouldn't be us if we didn't talk about media coverage. Um, we are both on the executive board of the NWSL Media Association, which is an unpaid role for both of us, um, <laughs> just as a full full disclaimer. You mean the um, industry? <laughs> a volunteer position. Um, but I, I did want to talk to you just in terms of what we think coverage might be looking like for 2021, right? Because as I think everybody knows, people are not really covering games in person right at the moment, unless you're in a market. Um, I'm at least relatively close to sky blue, but to get out there is definitely a bit of a haul, but also, you know, like neither one of us traveled to Orlando, right. For she believes cup. Um, There's no direct access to players still. And this is going to still be kind of our normal for at least probably a few more months, I'm still waiting to see, like, well, am I going to the Olympics, right? Like, there there are still, like, these big questions kind of hanging out there. Um, and I think that that's kind of been, you know, like, we have ongoing discussions in the in the media association about, like, what we need in terms of access, right, and, and how we can work together with the league and the players and the teams and all these various things. But just in terms of, like, big picture women's soccer coverage. Um, I mean, I guess I'll just phrase it as like, where's your head at right now in terms of 2021 and what we're looking at? That particular phrasing <laughs> is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I, I've been interested in the Zoom world in the increase in volume of people on these, you know, quote unquote press conferences. I mean, they are, um, you know, what does that look like in, return to normalcy. I think in some ways that almost feels like a microcosm of the sort of world cup dilemma of everybody pays attention then and, you know, what happens afterwards. So um, I, I love that, you know, the easier access has made for more coverage. I think, you know, there are sort of complications that come with that, but even beyond that, what happens when things are back to normal, so to speak, and, and we're in person. So, you know, I am, I'm curious to see that. And I think we are, and I felt this since 2019, finally, I wanted to feel that we were at a turning point in previous years, including 2015, 2019 finally felt like that. And that's where, you know, the pandemic was particularly problematic, I guess, for the sport and the league. But, you know, even through that, it, you know, you look at the sort of CBS numbers and Twitch numbers that get referenced and you see like, you know, that actually, there was still some growth in, in many ways. And, and I think personally, even at Equalizer, we saw um, at least, you know, that the pandemic didn't like kill our business or coverage. So um, I, I think that that's really interesting that women's sports in general, women's soccer has kind of grown uh, during a time when men's sports have taken a hit and that, that speaks to the models, but, you know, media coverage wise, I think it's just, there are so many people sort of getting involved now and that's a very good thing. And it also makes for a landscape of, you know, kind of where does this go now? And, and, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of who is going to be here in a few years too, which, which is another thing that we've seen. Right. Happen. No. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting before 
we started talking for this podcast, like, you know, I had brought up Alex Morgan is now part of this new media company along with some other athletes um, and how that fits into the landscape. Right. Because I mean, we have seen the rise of the players tribune and then what was very interesting to me is reading the New York times article about Alex Morgan's new company. Like there was this kind of like entire detour about how much money the players tribune blew through. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that's eye opening. Okay. But I think it is really interesting because, you know, we have seen more independent things come in and fit into the landscape. Like I think about just women's sports, right. And like Kelly O'Hara having a podcast and having her voice in as, I mean, like I, I spoke to her when it launched and she was just like, please don't call me a media person. Like that is not what I'm doing here. Right. Um, but it is really interesting to see how athlete athletes want to tell stories, right. And how that both fits in and is different from like what you or I do. And it's not, I don't think it's a bad thing to have it either. Like, I think that that's kind of, you know, if we talk about, and this is a conversation that I've had with practically everyone I've talked about, if we think about like the infrastructure of the coverage of women's sports, and we hear this 4% number over and over again, bringing more people into that infrastructure is not inherently a bad thing. Yeah, I think it's a it's a shift, you know, in general, even beyond the sport, more to the the industry itself. That um, I'm thinking of 2015, 2016. I mean, you had Players Tribune, then you had Uninterrupted. Um, you know, you had some these sort of, and and now we still, you know, even that New York Times article you mentioned speaks to some of the different sort of player driven media models. And I, I think, you know, there's a space for both. They are sort of different in in ways. I think that. Um, there is kind of this natural tension that I think we both have said is, is kind of unfortunate and awkward in ways of, you know, the introduction of like, I'm a journalist is usually immediately met with some level of skepticism. And, and you know, I, I think you and I obviously have relationships that um, at least vouch for our credibility and, and yeah. honor and whatever else that uh, we're good for our word. But, you know, the, the some of the inherent existence of athlete-driven media is a lack of trust in existing traditional media. So, you know, there is a push-pull there. And I think, you know, the um, where it goes on, on the women's side will be interesting because there, you know, this has been talked about as the sport, and maybe we can just say women's sports grows or grow, but, but women's soccer specifically grows you know, I think there are things that should be copied on from the men's side. I think there are things that absolutely should not be copied from the men's side, but part of the growth is going to be, you know, look, I mean, we were talking about player salaries earlier. I'm sure that players we cover could do without us knowing what they make and publishing that to the world. But these are things that some players are going to be cool with. Some are going to be annoyed with, but as there is that growth, there's going to be, you know, simple stuff like that, but also just kind of, you know, unfortunately, I think you're going to have to deal with some of the uglier stuff of stupid tabloids coming in and coming, you know, coming up with things and, yeah. you know, all that uglier stuff that the yeah. men's side deals with because those players are now at a celebrity level where it goes beyond a sport. And right. I think, you know, yeah. that's, we're seeing some of that. <laughs> you just side. reminded me of we were at the same game. It was the send-off game before the 2012 Olympics. And I honestly think that was probably, it was in Philly, I want to say. But we were at, I was doing an interview with Heather O'Reilly 
And then there was like the, you know, the mix zone, like at training. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was standing talking to Hayo and someone had asked for Abby Wambach. And the question that they asked her was like, who has the best butt on the team? And I just remember everyone, everything coming to like a screeching halt. <laughs> just like, and this is like my, I'm, I'm 99% sure that was like my first U.S. Women's <laughs> National Team media availability. And I was extremely nervous. And I just remember being like, well, at least I'm not that asshole. <laughs> like, I don't remember be, this. It could be so much worse and like i mean aaron heifetz who's the press officer for the u.s women's national team like immediately was like and you're done goodbye you know like took care of it but like that's that's kind of always the threat of like yeah you're gonna get people in here like i have i have certainly watched and this is not like a 2021 problem people coming into a space and asking questions because they are not equipped to ask questions about women's sports so and they, they might be like sports reporters too, but then they get put in a situation where they are not prepared or um, <laughs> Hope Solo in Boston used to get some really, really fun questions and it would never end well. So I watched a lot of those happen over the now, years. Of I do I do remember some of those specific anecdotes actually, because I uh, that was actually, there was, there was a reporter at, at a Breakers game um, and the first question, and again, you have to like a media sort of nerdy insider thing is like, I'm not going to say that if you're new to the scene, you should sit back and wait. I, I think that is smart, but you at least have to know what you're walking into. And like, if you had ever spoken with Hope Soul at all, one of the questions that she absolutely did, just did not like, and rightfully so, was anything framed as, so you didn't have much to do today because- <laughs> Like the U.S. would play these like friendlies against Russia and win nine nothing, and they right. would have a shot against. And she hated that, and rightfully so. And I do remember I had like a legitimate story and like questions that I needed to ask her about something. And that was a newer person on the scene jumped in, first question, got to ask it, and it was like something to the degree of you didn't have much to do today. She had a few words to say about that and was uh, ended the interview herself, um, which I'm not saying anything bad about her. I'm saying bad on yeah. the reporter. And yes, I remember that one pretty vividly because that was very annoying. But I don't yeah. remember the question at hand that you just mentioned from Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, again, like there have been some good stuff where I'm just like, and sometimes, you know, like I, I have struck out with questions before, but also again, like I, I feel like, at this point, the players kind of know me as a, as a person and they just look at me and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, sorry, <laughs> all right, wrong, wrong Avenue. Let's, let's change topics. So yeah, it is. I mean, it is really, really interesting. I think I'm, I'm also, I think that there are pros, right. To the fact that like, as a, me a, a national reporter, right. Like I can hop into a Houston dash press conference on zoom right at the moment. Whereas before it was like, am I in Houston right now? No. So I have to go to the team directly and be like, can I talk to X, Y, Z for a story? So like there is more access, but then I think what we tend to have to fight extra hard for is getting the bigger stories or getting like more nuance because zoom is not a ideal space for like i mean this podcast is one thing right but like when you're in a zoom with like 10 other people and like either no one's asking questions or like people are asking where like it just it's a weird vibe sometimes so it, it will be interesting i think to watch 
2021 play out and see like how we shift back into how we potentially used to do our jobs slash we'll now do our jobs in new ways. Yeah. Yeah, But I'm with you on that. The, you know, the 4% numbers referenced a lot. We've talked about this, you know, there's gotta be, there has to be tangible sort of action from that. I think we're seeing some of it. Um, I think we're seeing advancements, but you know, the changing of that requires quite a bit of effort. And, and I think, you know, some of it is that nuanced storytelling. Some of it is bigger players. There, uh, I th- in short, I think an element of it is created if it's not happening, yes. But there has to be some, some sort of awakening from existing big outlets and entities because yeah. they still do have a huge control over the space. Yeah, I thought Sarah Spain's comments actually in the um, Chicago Red Stars Zoom for ownership were really, really important to framing that conversation of she's like, there are gatekeepers, right? In terms of who's making decisions about what gets covered, social media knocks down some of that gatekeeping, but there are still bigger projects ahead in terms of ownership, in terms of media coverage, in terms of all this other work where there are gatekeepers in place. So there, there is always more work to be done as you and I both, <laughs> both know as we are now, we're, we're hitting 7.30 on Wednesday night recording this podcast. And I, I think about all the work that I am still about to do this week. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeff. How about, can you please tell people where to find your work, how they could support your work directly, which is a thing that we love to do here at The Athletic as a fellow paywall, <laughs> paywall writer who understands yes. why this is important. Yes. Um, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. Uh, we'll get you all our premium content and that's year round NWSL us women doing a lot in Europe now. Um, so yeah, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. We'll get you all of it. And then, um, that, anything that's on our social or anything is probably there too. So, um, yes, I appreciate that. The, the paywall, um, it, talk about media trends. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but there's a reason that this is the direction in many ways for, I would say the, the two um, places where there is full-time, I'm giving you a plug on the podcast. <laughs> no. There's full-time uh, women's soccer coverage. You know, are, there's a reason that those two places are paywalls because that's what the, the market is, what the landscape looks like right now. Yeah. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you for this talk. Thank you for doing some math at the start of the show. We fortunately moved away from the math fairly quickly, but I do appreciate the, (laughs) as a person who legitimately left her international studies major after taking an economics class and was like, I like literature (laughs) just to give you a sense of how, how willing I am to avoid math. Um, And then I got into sports and it's like, oh, I need to know how statistics work. Whoops. Okay. So, all right. Well, we will, we will end it there. Um, thank you again for joining and I hope everyone supports Equalizer and their coverage as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Jeff for taking the time out of his Wednesday night and for being on the show. Now, one more thing as always, and I, usually I would have something probably a little bit better here, but 
it's the season, maybe series, question mark, finale of WandaVision, and that's just honestly entirely where my brain is at right now. This week, Marjorie watched all eight episodes in two days with me, so we are ready. I will be waking up very early on Friday with her so we can watch, and then I can exist on the internet for work on Friday without being spoiled. So I hope everyone who watches WandaVision goes in on Friday and and gets what they would like out of that episode. Okay, as always, the home for the show is at fulltimepod.com. The new trailer for 2021 is up. There are links to Apple, Spotify, Google, The Athletic, everywhere that you could possibly want to listen to this podcast and everything more that you could possibly want to know about the podcast, I hope. As always, I appreciate if you subscribe, if you share the show with a friend or two. There have been a lot of uh, tweets recently saying, Listen to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I super appreciate that. All of your engagement, your retweets, your Instagram stories, everything that you do to support this podcast is always, always appreciated. Again, one more one more time for you. If you do want more women's soccer content, plus everything else The Athletic has to offer for just $3.99 a month, you can start your new subscription at theathletic.com slash full time. As always, you can find me on Twitter at It's Meg Linehan. Our podcast producer is Michael Zimmerman, another noted WandaVision watcher. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan, and thank you for listening. Listening.